Welcome to JCCT Pulse. This is a podcast that brings you an overview of the most recent issue of the Journal of Cardiovascular Computed Tomography and in-depth conversations with the article authors. In each episode, we will go over a few hand-picked articles to keep you up to date with the latest in cardiovascular CT. I'm your host, Dr. Kavita Chanayan from Beaumont Health in Royal Oak, Michigan. On this episode of JCCT Pulse, I would love to invite Dr. Carlo DeCecco from Emory University to speak about a very interesting paper that is in the current issue of JCCT, which is Artificial Intelligence Machine Learning-Based Coronary CT Fractional Flow Reserve and the Impact of Iterative and Filtered Back Projection Reconstruction Techniques. And this is really a very novel way of looking at technology, and I would love to get your thoughts on this, Carlo. Can you talk to us about why you thought about this study? Yes. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for this kind of invitation. And uh, our thought behind this study was that we were at the time testing uh, this uh, new artificial machine learning uh, software which is the, uh, the Siemens research software for machine learning. And the software allows you to do at home, at your institution, the uh, fractional flow reserve analysis. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we were doing that, we noticed that, uh, w- or actually we were wondering what were other factors which could influence the fractional flow reserve calculation. Because so far, as you, as you may know, there is a vast literature about uh, fractional flow reserve, mainly used with uh, computational fluidodynamics, but there is that, that much about this machine learning-based fractional flow reserve. Mm-hmm. There are several studies showing that these techniques, the fractional flow reserve machine learnings, works very well in detecting and in uh, the presence of flow-limiting stenosis. But again, we wanted to go deeper and see if there is any factors which could influence these analysis. And so we started, uh, we we took our our population and we did a compare analysis, which was, for example, the influence of our reconstruction technique. And so we we decided to compare the standard filter-back projection with the iterative reconstruction we were using at that time. I see. And can you lead us through your study? You had 40 patients that were included in the study. Yes, we uh, we uh, had 40 patients. In these 40 patients, we got both data set. One data set was reconstructed using iterative reconstruction uh, iris, and the other data set were used, uh, was, was reconstructed using the filterback projection. After we got these two databases, we perform the fractional flow reserve analysis. And the analysis in the, the technique for the analysis is that basically you're going to draw the center line and the contours of each vessel of the right coronary, the left main coronary, and the, the circumflex. And then after that, the software is going to calculate the, uh, the presence, the, the, the fractional flow reserve at any point. And so you can pick up what is your uh, your value of fractional flow reserve. Then in a small uh, subcord of patients, 10 patients, we also got uh, a comparison with invasive 
fractional flow reserve. Yeah. Uh, results were actually interesting because we observed that there was a kind of a, a difference, a significantly difference in the values mm -hmm. between the fractional flow reserve reconstructed with a, with the filter bag and that one reconstructed with a, with iterative uh, reconstruction. This uh, difference wasn't uh, clinically significant in the meaning that wasn't changing a lot the diagnosis, but again, is a difference. And we were actually speculating, wondering in our discussion if this could be something we need to better uh, evaluate in the, in the future in, uh, in the assessment of the fractional for reserve to evaluate what, what are all these possible factors which can infect, which can influence the, uh, the analysis. Moreover, when we compare our result with the uh, invasive, with invasive uh, fractional flow reserve, the correlation was moderate for both iris and filter back, and there wasn't uh, a significant difference in the accuracy. Uh, an interesting result was also that the processing time for the, for the analysis of the FFR was significantly lower, shorter, using the iterative reconstruction technique mm. and compared with the filter back technique. The possible explanation for these findings is that uh, using iris, usually you get a better contrast to noise ratio. And also we know that iterative reconstruction is going to decrease the amount of calcium partially in the in the calories. So this could uh, improve the quality and, uh, of, the, of the examination and thus speed up the, the analysis of the calories for this kind of reconstruction. Yeah, this is fascinating. So, so this is really a very interesting viewpoint, right? Because we're saying that even the reconstruction technique is going to make a difference in clinical outcomes potentially for a patient. Potentially, yes. Uh, although so far all the multicenter clinical trials have been, uh, they, they demonstrated a very an excellent correlation both with of this uh, uh, machine learning technique with the computational fluid dynamics and with invasive uh, FFR. So likely this difference is going to be minimal. And we don't know what is the real extent of patients that could be reclassified as false positive or false negative due to this. Uh, techniques. What what we guess is the best insight from this paper is that you know machine learning is a, a new field. Uh, this these algorithms are often black box algorithms where this algorithm got trained on thousands and thousands of patients, and then they come up with results that sometimes we do not fully understand what is the the uh, the the logic behind. The results. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that they are not true, but we don't know what, what which uh, every single factor that can contribute to that result. So I guess the the, the underlying point is that we need to uh, extensive test all these machine learning algorithms which are which are coming more and more in our clinical practice, and we need to take in consideration that could be possible interaction that we were not expecting yeah. or uh, bias that could arise for example, from our technique, from our acquisition technique, from our reconstruction techniques. And so we need to maybe work on better standardization of our image and then apply this maybe machine learning algorithm. This could be a possible uh, interpretation of these results. Sure. And do you think this is applicable also to the uh, computational fluid dynamic derived FFR CT? 
Oh, well, that's a, a question that I'm not sure I know the answer because, you know, we don't do, uh, we don't do the analysis for computational fluid dynamic is done by a company Yes. in their, in their lab. Uh, so we do not know. But the thing is that also computational fluid dynamics is based on assumption. And uh, we know from other studies that sometimes there is discrepancy between results, for example, with uh, CT perfusion, with myocardial perfusion. Yeah. And the, the things is, again, uh, that is a mathematical assumption or an analysis. So there could be factors or uh, cases where other factors play a role and they, we, we, can, we can end up with false positive and false negative. So in general, my answer is yes. Okay. Obviously, you know, for FFR, CT, image quality is super important. And so did you control for image quality and for, you know, motion artifacts and other kinds of artifacts that could also influence the results? Yes, we perform before to move to the, to the result, we perform a quality assessment of both data set mm-hmm. using from a, a standard liquor scale, uh, going from non-diagnostic to excellent quality. And the two both uh, results, the average result was a 2.88 for iris and 2.53 for the filter back reconstruction. Mm-hmm. So both a diagnostic, a good quality, uh, although this difference was significant, in, in the meaning that uh, the image quality with iris was significantly higher a bit than the filter back reconstruction. And that could in part explain also uh, part of our results. Sure. Uh, but that's again could be uh, the fact that we know whether that applying the iterative reconstruction, we are increasing the image quality of our studies, especially talking about contrast to noise resolution and calcified plaque or artifacts due to to, to blooming uh, to calcium, so the blooming artifact. Yeah. And there was also a difference between the proximal and distal segments, right? Yes, it was. And uh, this uh, assessment was definitely easier for the proximal segment because we know that, and also this is a problem with other FFR technique, that going very distal in the assessment, we are we are losing our accuracy. We couldn't go too far because then our uh, evaluation of the lumen and our uh, delineation, actually accuracy in the, in the delineation of the lumen become decrease based on that. Yeah. So this is very cool. Obviously, everybody who's listening and reading and following this literature will want to know, okay, how does this influence clinical outcomes? And so... What's next for you? Are you continuing to look at this and the downstream effects of these seemingly overlooked technical issues in this field? Well, yeah, first of all, this is not a clinically available software. Yeah. So it's only for for research. And right now we are not applying that in clinical practice. But yes, we are keep to uh, we, we keep going with our analysis and assessment of the software. And uh, right now we are focusing, for example, on a comparison between the software, the, the fractional flow reserve assessment and the dynamic CT perfusion and PET perfusion. I see. Because we, we published another paper on JCCCT comparing, again, the prognostic, the, the accuracy in the prognostic effect of a fractional flow reserve versus dynamic CT perfusion, demonstrating that the, the perfusion is superior. And the reason is because perfusion is really demonstrating myocardial abnormalities. Mm-hmm. Instead, 
the fractional flow reserve is again a derivation, an analysis. So for some, can be for, there are more false positive and false negative compared with a, with a Mercator perfusion. And I guess this is a, a very interesting. Yes, it is. And we need to to go deeper and to see real what is a, a, the fractional flow reserve role and efficacy compared with dynamic perfusion, and in particular in a world where uh, artificial in- intelligence is coming, because we know that there are studies showing that, for example, uh, if we do a, a plaque a, a burden a plaque burden assessment in comparison with FFR, they correlate very well. Yeah, the, the question is that FFR is definitely a very important tool, uh, but how does it correlate in a world where we have all these new coming? Yes, yes. Or what is the role? What is your its place? That's for sure. Yeah, exciting times ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for talking with me about this very interesting study and the potential implications when it will become available in clinical practice. And I can't wait to see what comes of your work next. And I hope to talk with you again soon for JCCT Pulse. Well, thank, you again, thank you again for this, uh, for this interview. Thank you. Have a good one. This is such an honor for me to have Dr. Matt Budoff from UCLA join us on JCCT Pulse. And today we will be talking about the review paper that's in the current issue of the Journal of Cardiovascular CT that discusses the very important issue of coronary artery calcification and ethnicity. Welcome, Matt Thank you so much for coming to um, talk with us on JCCT Pulse. No, no, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you. So I think you are possibly one of the most well-quoted and cited authors of and authorities on coronary artery calcification. And I know that this has been something that you have been working on for quite some time, looking at ethnic differences. And... I have so many questions, but one of the things I wanted to start off with is to ask you to help us understand what is the etiology of the differences in how we see calcification in various ethnicities. Yeah, you know, I think it's really uh, still not fully understood. I would say that, uh, you know, the biggest differences we see is less calcification in in African Americans and you know there's there's different racial differences as well with Asians and even a little bit with Hispanics but I think the African American issue is is the the largest and has the biggest question mark behind it because you can you can understand perhaps that perhaps some of the Asians have less heart disease maybe due to diet or lifestyle uh, they tend to not be as heavy but African Americans have worse cardiovascular outcomes than Caucasians and other groups, and yet have lower coronary calciums by a lot. So I think that that's really not perfectly understood. Yeah. And the mechanism by which African Americans then end up with more sudden death um, is certainly still being explored, uh, what we call you know disparities. And, and it, it may be healthcare disparities, but I think it's more than that. I think there's there's true racial differences between the groups as far as metabolism and, and susceptibility. 
Mm-hmm. So it's like this complex interplay of genetics and lifestyle and risk factors and all of it, right? Yeah. And I mean, it goes into the bone as well. I've been <clears throat> doing research in uh, bone density and we can quantify bone density on the calcium scores because it's right, you know, the spine's in the picture. So it's easy to do. But we've uh, noted that, you know, they have higher bone density. African-Americans have higher bone density and lower coronary calcium, mm-hmm. whereas Caucasians have the opposite, lower bone density and higher coronary calcium. And of course, we know that calcification is, you know, intrinsic to important for both bone disease and bone health as well, well as coronary artery disease. So there's definitely some interplay there that, that extends into the racial differences we've seen as well. Yeah. So to backtrack a little bit, could you just speak a little bit about the ethnic differences in coronary artery calcification? What, what are some of the highlights? Yeah. So African-Americans have significantly less calcification. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, the biggest notable and most highly statistical difference between the groups is that there is a markedly reduced calcification prevalence among African-Americans. Now, just to be clear to everybody, once people have calcium, a score of 100, a score of 100 is equally predictive in every race. Mm-hmm. So if an African-American has a score of 100 or if a Caucasian or a Hispanic or a male or a female have a score of 100, they are at increased cardiovascular risk. What I'm, what we've shown is that the prevalence of those numbers of getting to 100 or getting to have a positive scan is significantly lower in African Americans. It's lower in Asians, and it's more similar in Hispanics and Caucasians. I see. So is there a correlation then with CT studies demonstrating more non-calcified plaque in, for instance, African-Americans? Yeah, so there's really not great studies uh, there. Uh, there's little, some, some data, but really uh, more of a paucity of data. There have not been any epidemiologic studies that have used CT angiography yet. Mm-hmm. So we've, you know, we've done calcium scoring in large epidemiologic population-based studies like MESA and Framingham, Cardia, ERIC, but we have not done CT angio in any of those trials. Sure. So we really need to look into that. Now, I'm hopeful that the Baptist Heart Study, which is run by Karam Nasir, will give us some information because that's CT angiography in, in about 3,000 patients as a population-based study in Miami. And there should be at least some, I don't know the exact prevalence, but there should be at least some proportion beyond, you know, Caucasian and Hispanic that are African-American in that, in that cohort. Sure. And to reiterate what you just said, it's really not that different in terms of predicting risk once the calcium score is above 100. And that's been shown in various studies, right? Yeah, I, sh- I, I did a study I published in European Heart Journal last year from MESA, the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis, yes. that and we showed every race, and this is a 10-year follow-up, true 10-year follow-up, and there were similar predictive models for calcium above 100 for all the different races, as well as for men and women. Sindenham said in the Middle Ages, a man is as old as his coronaries, and that's race-independent and probably gender-independent as well, although Sindenham didn't, didn't uh, back then speak to women, but speak about women. But yeah. but I think it's um it's just a true fact that once you have the plaque, you're, you're increased risk. But the soft plaque question, I think, is one that, you know, needs a lot of further exploration. I think that's 
that's possibly an answer. The other possibility with, with African-Americans is a left ventricular hypertrophy and sudden death through arrhythmia you know, mechanisms rather than through atherosclerotic mechanisms. So not, tr- not the similar types of MIs or type 1 MIs, mm-hmm. that there may be a difference there as well. So I think there's a lot of research that still needs to be done yeah. across the different ethnic groups. Yeah, and this is this is fascinating. So I'm very curious about what you said just now about looking at bone density and this is something that I've thought about as well just looking at you know why some you know my particular interest is in uh, um, heart disease in women and why some women tend to have more arterial calcification. And so would you suggest that if we see osteopenia or osteoporosis in anybody, then that should trigger the wanting to look at the coronary artery calcium score. I, I think that's yeah. I never, I never thought about it that way. I've never reversed it, but I think that that that's absolutely a great idea. I believe that, and we can look at this now. We, I have, I'm funded from the NIH to look at uh, MESA for bone density mm-hmm. using the CT. So we'll have calcium and bone density. And we can look at the prevalence among those who have osteopenia or osteoporosis of having a high calcium score. I'm sure it'll be very significant, but I think that's a brilliant idea is to, is to suggest that, that patients who have osteoporosis more likely than not have atherosclerosis. If the calcium can't get into the bone, yeah. it's going to go into the arteries and therefore maybe a calcium score or a CT angio may be warranted. Yeah, yeah. And I just want to ask you this question because I, you know, I've very interestedly followed your studies using garlic, aged garlic, and uh, correlation with calcium scores. And along those lines, have you seen any data about vitamin K2 and the importance of taking that supplement when somebody is on calcium supplementation? And that seems to be or some people suggest that that's the deciding factor in whether the calcium is going to go to the arteries or to the bones. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think vitamin K2 is you know, very important. And I think there is some nice literature coming out that vitamin K supplementation may be good. We have a couple papers that we've looked at, warfarin versus uh, the novel oral anticoagulants. And in both both studies, we did a randomized trial of warfarin versus Eliquis and warfarin versus Xeralto. And in both trials, warfarin had more calcification. So warfarin as a antivitamin, right? It's an antivitamin K. Mm. You know, you can, you can perceive that the potential mechanism of that harm of warfarin may be through the vitamin K mechanism. Yeah. I would just, um, you know, mention also parathyroid disease and vitamin D deficiency. Other things may also be cofactors in all of this bone metabolism slash calcium. Yeah. But I think it's very, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a, a very interesting relationship and there's some new data coming out about parathyroid ectomies in dialysis patients. And when you remove the parathyroid gland, the calcium score starts going down and the bone density goes up. Mm. So it's really interesting. And, and, you know, dialysis is obviously the end stage metabolic bone disease patient. But but clearly vitamin K2, I think, in the general population is going to be the more common answer. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. 
So, you know, I also wanted to ask you, how does this impact our clinical practice? As in, in in the last episode of JCCT Pulse, I interviewed Elliot McVeigh, who looked at these genetic polymorphisms that could potentially be used to decide when somebody should be screened with a calcium score. So, in other words, do you think that certain ethnicities should be screened earlier? I, I do. I think, you know, we have these now polygenic risk scores. I do think that there there is going to be a way, you know, moving forward to identify who's higher risk. But my guess is the polygenic risk score will be more expensive than the calcium score. Yeah. And I think that it might be better to do it the opposite way is to look for the phenotype. And then once you have the phenotype, if you can't explain why Mrs. Johnson has such a high calcium score, then you can look into genetics as one of the answers. Mm-hmm. I may be wrong, but you know, calcium scoring is about a hundred bucks. And I'm guessing these polygenic risk scores are going to be more than that. Yeah. You get a, a good cardiac assessment. And then all you're going to know is you might have a genetic predisposition to atherosclerosis. You still don't know if you have athero. So yeah. I'm not as keen on it yet, only because I think calcium scoring is the easy entry. But I think polygenic risk scores will be very, very informative to understand why somebody has the the phenotype. Yeah, absolutely. And and also, you know, with the availability of services such as 23andMe and how they will play out into our screening processes, I think will be very fascinating to see over the next few years. No, absolutely. And we'll have between uh, 23andMe and Ancestry.com and these other big companies, we'll have huge, huge data sets. And I, I just hope that there'll be opportunities to do, you know, more medical-based research, uh, you know, using these incredible cohorts. There's also NIH consortiums trying to get a million patients together to have genetic data and phenotyping. All of me is an ongoing study. I think all of us or something like that. Yeah. So hopefully those type of studies will really help us understand the genetics of atherosclerosis and coronary disease, which I still think is not as clear as it should be given the incredible investment in genetic testing so far. Yeah. Yeah, this is, is so cool. And, you know, I it's, it's such a treat for me to speak with you because I learn something new from you every time I interact with you. Thank you so much for being here with us on JCCT Pulse. And it goes without saying that I can't wait to speak with you again. No, it's an honor. And thank you for including me. And uh, good luck with future podcasts as well. I think it's a great program that you're putting on. Thank you, Matt. Next, I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Martin Willemink from Stanford University. And here at this point, we will be talking about his new paper in the Journal of Cardiovascular CT, which is about calcium scoring and um, a technical argument for a new scoring method. Welcome, Martin. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, thank you for joining us on JCCT Pulse to talk about this fascinating review and your suggestions and arguments for developing a new way of scoring calcium in the coronary arteries. So talk to us a little bit. What was your thought process with um, writing this review? 
Yeah, first of all, thank you for having me. I feel honored that you um, think that the article is interesting enough to uh, <laughs> to talk about in this podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so the, the reason why we wrote this review uh, paper is actually that the, the modern way of quantifying coronary artery calcium uh, remained the same over the last uh, 30 years or so. Mm -hmm. The Agatston score, that's what we currently use to quantify coronary calcium, was developed uh, in the late 1980s and clinically used since the early 1990s. And it was actually de not developed for CT scanning, but developed for uh, electron beam tomography, which is um, a scanning method that had faster rotations than uh, CT at that time. Actually, it's faster than current CT. Mm -hmm. But it was the only way to actually really measure coronary calcium without having uh, motion artifacts. But in the meantime, the conventional CT has improved tremendously and uh, due to technological developments. And therefore, electron beam tomography, or EBT, is actually not used uh, clinically anymore or hardly anymore. Yeah. But since the protocols were developed on EBT and uh, transferred to CT, they are actually still the same. So the way how we quantify Agatston is still we're using 120 uh, kilo voltage uh, tube current, uh, sorry, tube voltage. Uh, we're still using three millimeter slice thick images. Yeah. And w we haven't changed anything actually uh, compared to those days. While the current CT scanners allow for radiation dose reduction technologies such as lower tube voltages or different reconstruction algorithms, but we don't really use them uh, at this time. So we we think that this could be improved. Yeah. And we uh, evaluated what are the current disadvantages of the Agatston score and how could we improve this? Right. So, I mean, right off the bat for our listeners, what is the most obvious problem with this, with keeping the Agatston score? with the current CT technology? Is it a misclassification of uh, coronary calcium? Is that what uh, the main problem is? Well, first of all, the Agatston score and coronary artery cal uh, calcification, quantification in general, we all know it's a very strong predictor for future cardiovascular events. And it's actually, it's, it's a really good method to use. There are just, uh, the things that we're talking about here are just minor to make this a more robust uh, measure, but it is very strong. I think we all agree on that. Yeah. But still, the number of coronary CT scans is increasing tremendously. And also the radiation that we expose society to increases with that. And theoretically, we could simply reduce the radiation by, for example, using a lower tube voltage. And currently, the Agatston score is just validated on 120 kilovolt. So if we could reduce that, that would already have a substantial effect on the radiation uh, that we expose our patients to. Uh, so that's one obvious thing. If we could reduce the tube voltage, we could also reduce the radiation. Another obvious thing is the three millimeter slice thickness that we use. Multiple studies have shown that if you use thinner slices, mm -hmm. then uh, the reproducibility of the score actually increases. Because you can imagine if you have very thick slices, it's hard to quantify something small as coronary calcifications. Exactly. And yes. if you scan, yeah, so if you scan with thinner slices or reconstruct with thinner slices, then this reproducibility will likely um, improve. So what currently happens actually is uh, imagine you go 
you get a CT scan from a certain vendor, and then you get a certain Agatson score. You get uh, around the same time a CT scan on, a, on another CT scanner, then your score might actually uh, differ substantially. And we did a study on this a few years ago, and we found that uh, up to 6.5% of participants who would undergo a CT scan with two different vendors mm-hmm. would actually be reclassified to another risk category. So their treatment would actually change. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's not a super high number, but actually I think it is if you see how many people and actually undergo a CT scan for coronary artery calcium. Wow. So I think it is, in the end, it is an important topic. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, when you when you put it that way and say, well, we are using 30-year-old technology, <laughs> mm-hmm. then it really makes us think, shouldn't we be evolving our scoring protocols along with technological advances? And all the things that you just mentioned, particularly the radiation dose and, and of course, the misclassification of calcification because of its strong prognostic uh, value. So what are the other potential pitfalls of continuing to use the Agatston score with the modern technology? Okay, so you mean if we would change our protocols uh, to that more are more suitable with modern CT scanners? Yeah. Yeah, so there are actually some disadvantages, and that's the reason why we haven't really done that yet, is uh, if we re- would use different tube voltage. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, if we would go down to 100 kV instead of 120 kV, then uh, we would get more noise in the images. Yeah. And second of all, uh, calcium behaves different with different tube voltages. So if you go, if you scan with a lower tube voltage, then the attenuation of calcium increases substantially. Yeah. And that means that your scores will also go up uh, much, much more if you scan 100 kV versus 120 kV. Yeah. So if you don't adjust the reference scores or the thresholds for Agatson scoring and you just go to a lower tube voltage, for example, then you will definitely change uh, the reclassification or the classification of patients. Mm -hmm. And the same accounts for if you use thinner slices, then your score also may may go up. Also, you will get more noise. And with the Agatson score, we measure the peak density within a calcification. And if your noise goes up, you can imagine that the peak also will go up and your scores will increase. So if you use thinner slices, also the, um, the score will go up. Mm-hmm. So uh, a potential solution for this could be to use noise-reducing reconstruction algorithms such as iterative reconstruction or uh, AI-supported uh, reconstruction methods to at least reduce the noise so you won't have that problem. Right. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so... Now, you know, what What are your suggestions on how we could move this forward? Yeah, so our suggestions that we mention in this uh, paper are, first of all, uh, we should go to a lower tube voltage, for example, 100 kV, that will result in a lower radiation dose, and also that will increase the attenuation of low-dense uh, coronary artery calcifications. Mm-hmm. Uh, these ones are the ones that we might miss with our current Agatson score method, especially if we use the three millimeter slice thickness. So we suggest to reduce the tube voltage. Second, to go to thinner slice uh, images, uh, for example, one millimeter or less. And this would uh, theoretically improve the reproducibility. Yeah. 
In order to do that, we do need those uh, noise-reducing reconstruction algorithms. So, for example, uh, iterative reconstruction. Mm -hmm. So the use of iterative reconstruction is the third uh, suggestion. So the Agatson score is not a volumetric measure. It's actually, it measures per slice what's going on, how much calcium there is, and then it simply summarizes all the uh, calcifications. We think it's better to measure the volume and the density of the calcifications and determine a certain score based on that. Mm -hmm. And uh, another thing is currently the Agatson score is, for the Agatson score, it doesn't matter where the coronary calcifications are located. It doesn't matter if they're diffuse or concentrated, if they're proximal or distal. They're all the same. Mm -hmm. We think that if we use uh, more volumetric measures and we know where the calcifications are located, we can actually determine better if the location and if the type of calcium also is a predictor for future cardiovascular events, and maybe we can even improve an already uh, pretty good measure uh, such as the Agatston score. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, and so what would we need in the field to make those changes? I mean, we do need validation studies, right? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, you're totally right. So the, the problem, of course, is we have a lot of, uh, evidence with the Agatson score. And the problem is if we would switch to another quantification method, then <laughs> we need to do a lot of studies. So yeah, we need prospective studies in, we, we, in which we would evaluate these new acquisition and reconstruction methods. Mm -hmm. And that's, of course, the big problem currently, because it's, although we would really like to do this, it's almost impossible. And yeah, we, we would need a lot of money to do some prospective studies and evaluate the, pr uh, the predictive value of an improved coronary calcification method. Yeah, uh, definitely. And then, you know, the other thing that I think about is, I wonder if you've thought about this as well, in terms of obtaining a calcium score from a contrast study, mm -hmm. like a, a CTA, again, because of the very strong prognostic value of Cal you know, coronary calcium, if there could be a methodology for obtaining a calcium score on a contrast study. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, there's actually a lot of research going on on that topic, uh, too. The disadvantage, of course, is that uh, there's going to be iodine uh, contrast in the scan. And yeah, um, so the low density calcifications, you cannot really measure because they will be overlapping in attenuation as compared to the iodine that's in the coronary lumen. Mm -hmm. But the dense calcifications definitely will be quantifiable. And maybe that um, modern technology such as dual energy CT or in the future, photon counting CT, it will be better possible to differentiate iodine from calcium. Mm -hmm. And if we actually are able to uh, also quantify low density calcium, even in a, a CT angiography scan, and I think that might be possible in the future with photon counting CT, but that's something that needs to be evaluated then actually we could measure the Agatson score on uh, coronary CT angiography. I think that would be uh, that would be very valuable, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So are you in the process of considering or planning any of these validation studies with, you know, the suggestions that you make in this paper? Uh, actually, we, we are doing this in a relatively uh, small cohort, not enough to change the guidelines, unfortunately. <laughs> But maybe, you know, we, you need some preliminary data before you can set up a large study. So we we're, we're, truly hope that in the future this is going to happen. 
we are currently not building a really large uh, study uh, to actually do this, but we're just doing some smaller studies to evaluate the uh, potential of a new uh, acquisition and scoring method for coronary calcium. That's great. I can't wait to see those results and to talk with you about them. <laughs> yeah, looking forward to it too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much for being here with us and good luck on that study and everything else. And I hope we can chat again soon on JCCT Pulse about your exciting new research. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me and thank you for, uh, for this nice uh, conversation. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us today on JCCT Pulse. Please make sure you subscribe to the show so that you will never miss an episode. If you would like to read the articles we discussed today, they are available online along with the full issue at journalofcardiovascularct.com. And this link is provided in the show notes as well. SCCT members receive online access to JCCT as part of their membership. See you next time. Thank you for listening. <laughs>